What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pop Show. I hope everyone's having a great week so far. We got a lot to talk about today. First up, I want to talk about Michael Orr. He's the former NFL offensive tackle who's the main subject of the 2009 Oscar-winning film The Blind Side. Michael Orr filed a 14-page petition on Monday in Tennessee court with some serious allegations against Sean and Leanne Tui, who is the family that took Orr in as a high school student in the movie. So we'll run through that and the reporting that came out of ESPN today. Secondly, I want to talk about Nate Diaz's recent boxing match with Jake Paul. Now, I know some of you will say, ah, I don't really care about that at all. And trust me, you're going to want to hear this because Nate Diaz claims that he made more money from this one fight, this one boxing match, than his entire UFC career. So we'll run through the numbers on that and determine if it's true. And then thirdly, I want to give a rundown of the recent Netflix documentary on Johnny Football, Johnny Manziel. I'll talk about what they did well, what they left out, what could have been better, and you guys will get some great details into the mindset of what goes into a documentary like this. All right, let's get into it. Okay, so the first thing we're going to talk about today is Michael Orr filing a 14-page petition against his what he believed to be his parents, his adopted parents, in Tennessee court on Monday. So again, most of you have probably seen the movie The Blind Side or maybe read one of the couple of books that have come out before and after the movie from Michael Orr and others around him. But it's become a very popular story, not even in football, but sports and culture in general. Sandra Bullock played Michael Orr's mother in the movie. It was very popular. They did $300 million in box office. Super popular, made a lot of money on a $30 million budget. So the movie was huge, and that's essentially what Michael Orr became famous for. But I think the most important thing to start with here is that for those that don't know, Michael Orr has never been a fan of the movie. Never. Never. For as much money as the movie has made, he could have used this thing to promote his entire career, his entire life. He could have signed even more book deals. He got, could have done speaking engagements, all this other stuff. And he has certainly done some of that because his story is very unique and amazing and inspiring. But the movie itself, The Blind Side, the one that made $300 million, he hates. He's talked about this many times right after the movie came out. He said it and he has said it since then too. That he thinks the movie depicts things that, one, are just not true, but it makes him intentionally look bad to make the story better for the movies. And look, we all know this is something that Hollywood does. If you look at any of these kind of life-changing or inspiring movies over time, whether it's, you know, the recent movie that came out about Nike, The Pursuit of Happiness, whatever it is, right? Like any of these true stories, there's always a little bit of finagling that goes around to make the story better for Hollywood, right? And that's what happened with Michael Orr. Anyone that has read his book knows that, for instance, the family already met him once he was in high school. He, you know, he, he knew what a bed was. The movie acts like he had never seen a bed before. He was you know, completely homeless. He had nowhere to go to, all this kind of stuff. He was already in high school. They didn't introduce him to football. He was already playing football. I actually think they said that he was playing three sports at the time. So he was in high school. He was already playing football. This family didn't you know, show him the game teach him how to block like the movie makes it seem and get him into college. That's just not what happened. They obviously played an influential role in his life. And that's the reason why he has stayed so close to them over the last decade or two. But let's get to the allegations, because I think that part is just as important as understanding what was wrong in the movie. The allegations that Michael Orr is saying, and I'm going to dumb this down as simple as I can, because it's a 14 page document. And Michael Fletcher of ESPN did an amazing job reporting this news. But here's what you need to know. Michael Orr says that when he was going into his senior year of high school at 18 years old, the Tui family fooled him into signing a conservatorship that gave the couple, the parents, 
legal power to sign business contracts in his name. So essentially gave them access over his name, image, and likeness at 18 years old. Michael Orr is saying that he did not know that was the case. He was tricked into signing it. What he believed he was signing was essentially adoption papers. Now, there are some reports that have come out saying he's referenced this in his book, and we looked at that. And basically what his book says is he admits that he knows it was this type of document. It was a conservatorship. But he says that the Tui family told him that because of the state law in Tennessee, that was the document they had to sign to legally be adopting him, to take over as his parents. So he believed that he was adopted. He just found out supposedly in February that he was not adopted, that he is not their son. They just have a conservatorship relationship because of that document that he signed when he was 18 years old. Obviously, he's very upset about this. The family has profited off his story immensely from what we can tell. The mom, the wife of Sean, Leanne, has a motivational tour going on. She's done this for many years now where she does speaking engagements. She's written books. And she's obviously made money off of this outside of the movie or other things to do with Michael Orr. But secondly, the movie has become a big piece of this puzzle because Michael Orr says that the Tui parents and their two children, so four people in total in the family, not including Michael Orr, each of them signed a deal for the movie that got them $225,000 in cash and 2.5% of net proceeds. Okay, so let me say that again. The two parents and their two children, not including Michael Orr, each signed a deal where every single one of them got $225,000 in cash and 2.5% of net proceeds. And when you do the math on this, Darren Ravel had a calculation estimating that the movie netted roughly $175 million once you take out expenses and everything like that. So 2.5% of that plus the money, that's $4.6 million each. $4.6 million each. So with the four of them there, we're almost counting $20 million. What is that, $18 million each? That's insane. Sandra Bullock, Ravel says, was paid $5 million for the film. So the two kids, who were not in the film, of course, and the parents, who were also not in the film, they got paid roughly the same as Sandra Bullock for the movie. Now, Sandra Bullock obviously doesn't have much to do with this story outside of the fact that children and the parents were paid a similar amount of her for context on how much money that is, right? It's a, it's a huge sum for people who were not in the movie, and it's not necessarily even their story to tell. Obviously, a huge piece of this was Michael Orr. He's the main character in the film. It followed him for the rest of his life or will follow him for the rest of his life, and he's very clearly upset about it that the kids and the parents received millions of dollars, $4.6 million each estimated, when he didn't get a nickel. So there's a bunch of stuff out now, and the dad has already denied this. He's saying that the family didn't get any money off it. They all split an equal share of the money that they were given. Fox cut him a check, and I think he said it was 14000 each that the children, the parents, and Michael Orr all got. So each one of them got 14000 each, and Michael Orr saying that's not true. Sean Toohey is saying he's devastated. He'll end the conservatorship. He doesn't want you know this to be a stain on his family, yada, 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 yada. We don't know what's true. Obviously, some of this has to play out in the court of law, but it has become clear over the years that many of the things that were discussed in the movie and in books subsequently written by the Tui family are not true or were believed to not be true at the time. Some of this has come from Michael Orr. Some of this has come from other people that were around Michael Orr, whether that was friends or other people associated with the school. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that there has been rumblings for a, a period of time now that the story was embellished to a degree and has been used over the years to make financial profit. 
Now, of course, you have to take people for what they say. We don't know what's true and what's not true. But at the end of the day, Michael Orr is filing a petition against the family. He wants the conservatorship to end. And he wants, what he's also saying in the, in the petition, is that he wants back pay and royalty checks that he should have received from the film, from books, from speaking engagements, anything that essentially used his name, image, and likeness. I don't know if he's going to get it, but it's millions of dollars. We're not talking about a million dollars either. We're talking about 20, 30, 40 million dollars because of the money that the kids and the parents made off the film, or they're alleging they made off the film, the money that they made from subsequent book sales, the money that they've made from speaking engagements, everything like that. Anything associated with his story, his name, image, and likeness, he wants a cut of, which I think is probably fair, right? We'll see what the court of law determines and, and kind of what he gets out of this, but he's obviously very upset. It's gotten ugly to a degree where everyone's talking about it on the internet right now. ESPN is investigating it and other people want to know what the outcome is. So more to come there. I'll keep you guys updated as we find out more, but a sad situation all around. It's another reminder that everything you see in Hollywood, the movies, a lot of times they are embellished. They're not always true. And the people, the people that seem to be held on the highest ground are not always doing exactly what they say. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. All right. Next up, we got Nate Diaz versus Jake Paul and the economics behind their boxing match from this past weekend. So I don't think I need to explain to everyone exactly what's going on here, right? Jake Paul was a content creator beforehand. He turned into a professional boxer of some sort, we'll call it. He's been training and living in Puerto Rico full time. And he takes it serious. He takes it more seriously than I think people give him credit for. He trains every day. He works really hard at it. And he may not be fighting professional boxers that everyone else wants him to fight, but he's fought, you know, Nate Robinson, Tommy Fury, Ben Askren, Nate Diaz, et cetera. So he's fighting, you know, people in and around the boxing area or arena, we'll call it, MMA fighters, professional athletes, people that maybe don't cause him the greatest amount of harm, but can be a challenge, right? And gets people's interest up. But what he's really done is he has almost created what we've seen in the celebrity boxing space. And we'll get to why that's important in a second. But I want to start with the economics or the financials behind the fight between Nate Diaz and Jake Paul. So there's an MMA media site called Bloody Elbow. I don't know if all you guys know about this, but it's a site called Bloody Elbow. And there's a journalist, an MMA journalist that goes by the name of John Nash. John is great. I've seen a bunch of his work. He does a lot of the financial reporting on the UFC. So a lot of the numbers that you see come out about the revenue share that the fighters get, that's John Nash. He does a great job. He breaks down the numbers. Highly recommend checking out his work. But on Monday, he released a report talking about the money that Nate Diaz made from this fight. And he talked to Nate Diaz's longtime representative, Zach Rosenfield, who's the president of Real Fight. And Zach basically gave them the breakdown on how the fight went. He said that Diaz's company, Real Fighting Incorporated, partnered with Jake Paul's company, Most Valuable Promotions, for the fight. It was a joint venture, and that joint venture paid for the event cost. And then all of the revenue beyond the cost was split 50-50. So they each just split the money. That included pay-per-view buys, both consumer at home and commercial, the bars. It included tickets. It included merchandise. 
it included sponsorships. It basically included everything, right? So that's the first part is they had an equal 50-50 split on all revenues outside of what the event cost to put on. Pay-per-views, tickets, merchandise, sponsorships, everything else. Number two, they had a split with zone on pay-per-view revenue. So DAZN held the broadcast rights, both domestic and international for the pay-per-view broadcast. They put on the broadcast. It was also available on ESPN Plus and I think a couple other platforms too to boost the availability of it. But DAZN gave Jake Paul and Nate Diaz an eight-figure guarantee for the fight in the mid to high teens range, right? So we're talking, I don't know, $15 million, we'll say, to have the rights to the fight, a guarantee they get. Then DAZN covered all of the production expenses for the event. And every dollar beyond that figure was divided between DAZN, Jake Paul, and Nate Diaz. So again, you got to think about this from the JV perspective. They had a joint venture where they were splitting 50-50, but obviously DAZN is going to make money on this too as the partner in the broadcast. So they had an equitable split, what they'll call it. Some of the money went to DAZN afterwards, and then Paul and Diaz split their share of the money 50-50. So the reason why this is so important is because Rosenfeld told ESPN that Diaz and Paul were each set to make a figure that was well into the eight figures. And I'm quoting that, well into the eight figures. And that was because Nate Diaz's contract was structured like a top boxer contract, with Rosenfeld telling Nash that fans, and I quote again, fans would be shocked by the amount. It would definitely make you consider wanting to box. But the fact of the matter is that Diaz was able to earn so much money from this deal because his contract was treated like a superstar boxer. And superstar boxers, for those that don't know, they're making 70 to 80% of event revenue. So the boxers are making that compared to the UFC where you're just making you know a nickel of what they're actually making on these fights. Because the UFC is an entity, they're only handing out, I think it's like 15% of annual revenue to fighters every single year. Obviously that depends on kind of the quality of fighter you are, the amount of pay-per-views you're selling and everything else but you're making a fraction of what boxers are making when you, when you aggregate the total revenue that an event creates. So the reason why this is important is because John Nash says in the article that Nate Diaz has made 15 to $20 million total in UFC career earnings. We're not talking about endorsements or anything else like that. Just on the mat in the UFC in the octagon, he has made 15 million to $20 million total. So if he's making 15 million off just the guarantee from DAZN plus everything else, he absolutely made more than his career UFC earned. Absolutely. And that's crazy. It's crazy for a number of reasons. The first thing I would say it's crazy for is because he's not a boxer, right? He's a UFC fighter. And Jake Paul is not really a boxer either. You know, he's a professional. He trains. He's done fights, all that kind of stuff. He is technically a professional boxer. But we're not talking about Canelo here, right? We're not talking about Floyd Mayweather. We're not talking about any of these younger guys that are coming up now. These guys essentially created this demand by promoting these events on social media. That's what it is. Jake Paul and his partners over the last year, two years, three years now have essentially invented celebrity boxing. But what they've done is they've done something really smart. They've made it legit enough. They've made it legit enough, right? Everyone knows that if Jake Paul stepped in the ring with Canelo like he wants to do, he would get absolutely demolished. We all know that. I'm sure Jake knows that. He'll deny it. He knows it. But at the end of the day, they've made it legit enough to where these guys are training, they're fighting, they're trying their best. They go in the ring and they promoted them enough to where they're able to sell these pay-per-views online because of the audiences that they've built on social media, right? I mean, I don't, I'd have to look it up, but Jake Paul has millions of followers on every social media channel you can imagine from YouTube to Instagram, to TikTok, to Twitter, to everything. Millions and millions and millions of followers. And he's promoting these fights himself. 
There's a new docuseries that's out or a documentary out on Netflix, part of their Untold series, which we'll get to with Johnny Manziel. But Jake Paul has an episode on there. And, you know, I wouldn't consider myself a huge Jake Paul fan. I wouldn't consider myself a Jake Paul hater. I feel like I'm probably somewhere in the middle. But I was expecting myself not to really like the episode. I was like, uh, you know, what do we really have here? Is this guy just going to promote himself? What do we got? And it actually made me like him a little bit more because there is very clearly a method to the madness, right? He understands the promoter game. He understands how to get people to buy the pay-per-view. He understands that he has to train and work hard to be taken seriously. He's got his head on straight, it seems like, right? There may be some crazy antics and stupid stuff that he does, and you may scratch your head and say, this guy's a total idiot. But that's all part of the act, right? That's all part of the act. And he's done an incredible job at selling these fights over the last few years. And you can get mad, you can get angry, you can say it's not worth your time, you cannot watch. I don't watch most of these fights. I usually catch them afterwards or watch the highlights. You can do all those things, but at the end of the day, you cannot question the fact that he has been able to sell these fights because they're making millions of dollars. And I think the after effect of this, and the thing that you need to watch out for, and I'm going to be watching out for, is what happens to other fighters. Do other UFC fighters say, hey, hang on a second here. This guy made 15 to 20 million his entire career. We're talking about Nate Diaz. This isn't some scrub. This guy has fought, you know, 35 fights in the UFC. He's fought McGregor twice. He fought Jorge Masvidal. He fought Leon Edwards. He fought Tony Ferguson. He fought Michael Johnson. He fought legit guys. Legit, legit, legit guys. Cowboy Cerrone. He fought good guys, 35 fights in the UFC. He made 15 to 20 million dollars. He's been one of the poster boys of this company for a decade. 15 to 20 million dollars. He steps out almost at retirement and he makes more than that in one boxing match against Jake Paul. You can't tell me that Jake Paul isn't going to show that to other people and say, hey, come fight me next. It's absolutely going to happen. He's going to continue to try to raise the bar and raise the bar and raise the bar. And what it seems like is unless he loses two, three, four fights in a row, gets knocked out, embarrassed, this might go on for a little bit. And I don't want to say it's bad for boxing because boxing was dying beforehand. People get mad at me saying that and other people saying that, but boxing was a dying sport. I'm 28 years old. No one I know, no one I know was seriously super into boxing. It's just not how it was. We grew up, you know, I was watching Mayweather Pacquiao. I saw all the old fights, right? But like those fights were big even just a few years prior. But even since those fights over the last decade, the sport has taken a tremendous hit. The promoters all argue with each other. There's a lot of backroom politics going on and it's negatively affected the sport. So I think this is a good thing. It has its own lane. In my mind, it's a completely separate subject and a separate entity. It's what we'll call celebrity boxing. It's somewhat skilled, but certainly not as skilled as you know the highest level of boxing. Maybe they'll get there someday. But the one thing that is undeniable is these guys are making a lot of money, and the ringleader behind it all is Jake Paul, and he has done a really good job at building up the momentum and the interest in this from a consumer standpoint. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about today is a review of the new Netflix sports documentary on Johnny Manziel. This is part of Netflix's series, Untold. I just mentioned how they had one on Jake Paul. They obviously have one on Johnny Manziel. They're doing one on the steroid era. They are having one on the Florida Gators football team with Tim Tebow and Hernandez. There's a bunch of them. They did one on Marty Fish, the sports betting scandals. They've done a ton of them by now. If you're into sports in any form or fashion, I highly recommend you check them out. Virtually all of them are worth watching and very good. But I want to talk about today the Johnny Manziel one specifically. And I don't want to necessarily spoil it for any of you, so you don't need to turn this podcast off if you haven't watched it yet. I'm not going to say anything that's going to ruin it for you. I highly recommend you go watch it regardless of what you think about my review. 
But if I had to summarize my review in just a few words, it would be good, not great. And I'll explain why I mean that. Now, any series with Johnny Menzel was going to be good, in my opinion. Any series. The guy was too electrifying. He was too good of a college player. There were too many stories about him, too many antics that he did. His falling out in the NFL from a bust standpoint was one of the biggest busts of all time. He made a bunch of money, looked like a fool, got cut in two years. The story was going to be good regardless, however you did it, in my opinion. But it could have been much better. I think it could have been much better. And the part that annoyed me to some degree is it felt like Johnny Manziel dictated the terms. And I'll explain why I mean that. So the documentary, obviously, to be a quality documentary, you got to get Manziel to participate. He's the number one guest that you need on the show, the number one interview to make this thing successful. Obviously, you want his coaches, you want his friends, you want his parents, you want his associates, whatever. The number one person you need is Johnny Menzel. I don't know how much they paid him for this, but he got paid. Absolutely 1,000% he got paid for this. And my guess is it was probably a decent amount of money. So he does this, and they basically kind of just like flirted through and like skipped over a bunch of important stuff, right? So the first part is talking about how he grew up in Kerrville, Texas, went to Tibby High School, how great of a player he was, and so forth. Great. Awesome. Cool. Background is helpful. But then they went to Texas A&M and they basically gave like no context on the team. So you had to be like a real football fan to understand what was happening. You would think that Johnny Football, Johnny Manziel was the entire team. And he wasn't. Basically their entire starting offensive line that year that he won the Heisman got drafted in the first round of the NFL draft at some point. Mike Evans was on the team. They had a bunch of other good receivers, they had a bunch of good defenders. The team was good. Now, I'm not saying that to take anything away from Johnny Manziel. He was the best player on the team. He was the best player in the country that year. He won the Heisman and he deserved to win the Heisman. He was incredible. The part that's crazy in the film is that Manziel didn't practice. He didn't practice. He never watched film. There's a clip that went viral on social media. I tweeted this out the other day where he's with the Browns at this point. And for those of you that don't know, NFL teams, a lot of teams at this point, college teams and uh, younger teams too, even youth teams, some of them will give out devices. In this case, it was an iPad where you can watch films. They load up the film for you. They even have slots in there to tell you what to look for, kind of what sequences to go through, and so forth. Johnny Menzel, these iPads, the team can track how much film you're watching. So Eric Burkhart, who is Menzel's agent throughout this whole process, he does an interview for the show, and he's like the general manager, Ray Former, calls him up and goes, the guy doesn't watch film. And Burkhart's like, well, he's got to watch some film. And he's like, no, dude, you don't get it. He literally doesn't watch any film. It reads 0.0. He didn't watch a single minute of film. So the important context here is that's when he left the facility. This is on an iPad. He has meetings every single day. He's obviously in those meetings with the coaches. He's watching film of the teams and of you know himself during practice, during training camp, and, and et cetera. But he didn't watch any film when he went home, which is obviously important if you want to be a franchise quarterback in the NFL. So he wasted a tremendous amount of talent. He obviously didn't care about anything else in college other than going out and partying and showing up on game day and playing really well. Tremendously talented guy, but it was almost like infuriating to some degree because he showed no remorse in the fact that he could have been one of the best college football players ever and a great NFL quarterback based on talent alone. And he just, you know, gave it all up so he could go party and stuff like that. There was no remorse in this story. It was no kind of like kingdom come. I figured everything out. I'm back. I'm great. Things are going well. The start of the film starts with him smoking and drinking beers at his house in Scottsdale. And then the end of the film, after they talk for two seconds, literally two seconds about him trying to kill himself and then him having a drug and alcohol problem, they show him drinking a beer. They literally show him drinking a beer. And I'm not saying that like he can't go drink a beer. I don't really care what the guy does in his personal life. 
but it just felt like this weird kind of like fiasco at the end where you're talking about all these problems this guy has. You don't mention that he's gotten over them at all. And then you just show him drinking. What it felt like was Menzel wanted to make some money on a documentary and agreed to do it, but didn't want to get too deep. And that's okay, but you just got to go into this thing with your eyes wide open and understand that's what the documentary is. It is not a redemption story. He does not go into super detail about you know anything that happened with his personal life. He tells a couple stories that you probably didn't know beforehand about his dad potentially faking a heart attack so he could get out of a drug test. Like there's some crazy stuff that went on, no doubt, but that could have been condensed into like five minutes or you could have done it right, in my opinion, which was have like a seven to eight or a nine episode series detailing the whole story, right? Because I think what we're going to see when we look back on this a decade from now and why this is important, I'm going to mention this is because we're in the NIL era now, right? Where people can get paid for name, image, and likeness. And you guys probably already know this without watching the documentary, but Johnny Football got in trouble because he was signing autographs and making money off that with the NCAA. This is not illegal. It's completely legal to sign autographs. It's against the NCAA rules or was against the NCAA rules at the time. What happened was Manziel won the Heisman, his redshirt freshman year, first freshman to ever win the Heisman. Then he goes and he starts signing autographs. Someone approaches him. They offer him a couple thousand bucks. He says, yes, he signs autographs. Then someone offers him 30,000, 50,000, 60,000. He goes through the whole story. He says at one point he has $100,000 in cash stuffed under his bed. He's going to hang out with Drake. He's taking private jets. He's doing all this stuff. They convince the media that his family's rich and that's how he's able to do it, which is just kind of hilarious in its own right because this is the same year as the Manti Teo scheme with his girlfriend. So the media must have just been asleep at the wheel at this point because no one investigated that until it was too late with Deadspin's article. No one gave a crap about Manziel. Everyone was repeating this line on television. They show the clips of Colin Coward and other people like that just saying, you know, his family's rich. He comes from oil money, et cetera. And that's not true. Menzel clearly states that in the film and his buddy states that too. But I just wish there was a little bit more context. You know, they left a bunch of questions unanswered, like what's he doing today? Did he save any of the money from his NFL contract? Does he have regrets? What's his relationship like with his family? You know, there's just like a bunch of different things that they could have went through. And to do that in 70 minutes, an hour and 10 minutes, it's just not logical. It's not possible. So if you're going to do something like that on such a complicated figure who very clearly is content with his life today and doesn't necessarily show any remorse, and not that he has to show remorse, right? He doesn't need to apologize to me or anyone else, but the guy had a lot of talent and a lot of people were invested in him and the school. Kyle Field, you know, was basically built by Manziel. They knocked that thing down when he left and built this huge stadium. They got, I think they said it was like $750 million in donations in 2013, Texas A&M alone. And the entire SEC had like 300 million two years prior to that. So the school benefited tremendously. He didn't get any of that money, which is why I was saying when we look back at this a decade from now, I think we're going to look back at this and see it as archaic. We're going to be like, wait, what the hell? This guy made billions of dollars for the school and he got in trouble for signing $30,000 worth of autographs. And that's exactly what happened, really. And I think we're going to look back at that and just be like flabbergasted. We're not going to be able to believe it of how messed up it was. And it was messed up. And, you know, it's one thing to say the NCAA is crooked and we shouldn't have been able to do that. But Manziel's got this weird gripe with the NCAA where he like thinks that they owe him the world. And it's like, dude, those were the rules at the time. Many other people were abiding by them. Some weren't, of course, and some got away with it. But you got caught doing what you were doing. You weren't necessarily even trying to hide it. You were doing a lot of these things out in the open and being very brash about them, taking private jets, buying Mercedes, hanging out with Drake, doing all these things. 
So it seems kind of silly to get so upset about the NCAA now when this has been happening for, for you know, decades at this point, and it recently got changed where this stuff is now legal and allowed to do under NCAA rules. So those were my just like kind of feedback. Again, if you haven't seen the documentary, I still recommend you watch it. I think it's well worth the watch. I think it's going to change your perception of Manziel a little bit, better or worse, kind of depending on where you are on the spectrum. But for me, I just felt like it could have been done better. I was a little bit disappointed at the end of it. And I'm usually pretty easy to please with this type of stuff because anything sports related, especially when it comes to sports business and the autograph signings and the money being thrown around and the NIL aspect, I was really looking forward to this. And I just felt like it could have been done a little bit better. That's it for today. I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. We'll talk again tomorrow.